0: Last week we began a series on the Sermon on the Mount, this series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. And for more of a wider view of what we've been thinking about and what you've been reading this week, I came across an interesting article written by a professor at Texas A&M University, Dr. Virginia Stem Owens. And she writes this in this article. She says, Most of the students at my university come from middle class, conservative, Republican families. The vices here are like the values. The vices here, like the values, are traditional weekend drunkenness and sex. And therefore, when I assign my freshman English class, the Sermon on the Mount, a selection from their rhetoric, textbook taken from the King James Version, I'd expected them to have at least a nodding acquaintance with the reading. After all, Texas has always been considered at least marginally part of the Bible Belt. She writes, the first paper I picked up began in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. It goes on to say, there's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. So she writes, "All right, I, I, th- I thought maybe this was just a fluke, but she picks up another paper, and it reads this way: "It is hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago in the Bible. Adam and Eve were the first two people, and if they were then, where did if, if they were." Then, where did black people come from? Also, the Bible says nothing about dinosaurs, and I think God would have mentioned them. The professor says, I put down my red pen because this was no fluke. What I had here was a major trend. The question I was personally interested in, she says, was why were these students, A, so angry at what they read, and B, so dismissive of it? She picks up another paper. And she reads, The stuff the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. Another paper goes on. It says, I did not like the essay, the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another paper, she says, writes, This student writes this way. In this essay, the author explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. This essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. It can be used as a guideline for good manners, though. She writes, the current widespread biblical illiteracy catapults us into a situation more nearly approximating that of the original audience of the Sermon on the Mount in the first century. She says certainly this prospect presents a number of frightening possibilities also. The underpinnings of society as we know it already sagging dangerously may collapse completely. And then she says as a closing few sentences... As Western civilization expends what little biblical capital it has left, we may find ourselves living impoverished, not in just the postmodern age, but in the new barbarianism. And she calls that a sort of fluorescent dark age, like the inside of one of our shopping malls. Dr. Virginia Stem Owens from Texas A&M University. Today we begin the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, commonly called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes give a, a statement, a succinct statement, on the ethos of the kingdom of, of heaven. <coughs> <coughs> and they summarize the principles of the kingdom. The, the Beatitudes are a radically bold statement of Jesus Christ. His intent to... Establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, which will bring true fulfillment to his followers. So our text today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Let me read this to you. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is God's word for us today. Now let's begin with sort of understanding this section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. Now the name Beatitudes comes from the Latin beatitudi, or Beatus. And it's the English translation, Blessed. Now some recent versions of the Bible Translate this word blessed as happy or fortunate Which is a pretty accurate translation Except when we think of someone says I'm happy Our modern usage of that term is sort of the temporary emotional state wouldn't, wouldn't you agree when someone says I'm happy They could not be happy in just in a little bit But blessed According to the Beatitudes, according to the Bible Is a state of existence in relationship with God In which a person is blessed From God's perspective though It's not feeling blessed from your perspective It's from God's perspective Even when he or she doesn't feel real happy Now this is God pronouncing you blessed Knowing and loving you and saying you were blessed and so any negative feelings and hardship and problems and trouble Cannot take away that blessedness of those who are in relationship with jesus Now the structure is really important when you look at the beatitudes as a whole The beatitudes when you read them they sound like beautiful sayings or like it's almost like poetry it's it's wise proverbs, except that if you read them closely, they don't make much sense. Each beatitude is composed of two poetic clauses. And there's eight primary statements, or eight beatitudes, um, that make up this whole section. Now, here's something a little technical, but I think it's important. So when you look at the beatitudes as a whole, and you look at the first beatitude. In, in, in chapter 5, verse 3 Take a look at that And then take a look at chapter 5, verse 10 And what you find there is These two sections or phrases For theirs is the kingdom of heaven Form sort of bookends to the Beatitudes Do you see that up on the screen and in your Bibles? Just nod your head Just uh, Yeah, good, okay, good Now this is a, a common literary style Called inclusio so if you were in room A last quarter in that Bible study class, if you were there, do you remember when they taught about inclusio? Remember that? Yeah, sure you do. You didn't want to raise your hand, that's all. That just, you remember. Let me, let me remind you of that. The inclusio signals to us that so when there are bookend phrases or scriptures like that, top and bottom like that, the inclusio signals to us that within the bookend scriptures there, is a common theme. And that common theme for the Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven. So the inclusio, this literary style, is also important to the Beatitudes. Now the purpose here, these are not eight different sayings that tell us about eight different characteristics of eight different people. That's not what this is. These are not eight things to strive for. The weight is not on the condition of the people, but the weight is on the kingdom. The weight's not on the, on the condition. The weight is on the kingdom. Now, these are qualities or characteristics of people who are in the kingdom. That's what these are. These are characteristics of one group of people, kingdom people. Now, the purpose of the Beatitudes is that Jesus is describing what kingdom people are like. That's what this is. Now, it's interesting because as I go out through the community, talk with my neighbors and, and just involved with people who are, we'll call them unchurched, they, they don't go to church. When I talk with them, one of the things that comes up a lot is they want to know where, they, where people stand with God. I think maybe we want to know that too. Where do we stand with God? And so as I talk with people out there in the community, inevitably they find out I'm a pastor and I'm at the gym, and someone says, Hey, I heard you are a pastor. And they'll, they'll talk, and, and inevitably, they'll ask a question something like this. They'll say, Does God care if I cheat on my taxes? Or I'll, I'll, I'll hear this every once in a while. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. They'll, someone will say, You know, I have a friend, Right? <laughs> I have a friend, and then they'll tell me about this friend's vice or their issue or their problem, and then they ask, what do you think God thinks about that? And if I ask, if I ever have the courage to ask, are you a Christian? I was in a coffee house recently, and I was reading, I had books preparing for uh, the Sermon on the Mount series, and had a cup of coffee and just books and my bible and and the tables were real close and the person next to me said um what what is that what are you what are you doing and i said well i'm, I'm reading the bible i'm reading I'm, I'm a pastor i'm preparing for a sermon and they said oh okay and we started to talk a little bit and he had a lot of interest in what was going on and i said are you a christian and when I ask that question, do you hear answers like, sometimes you hear someone will say, are you, are you a Christian? And they'll say, I, I think so. Inter- that's an interesting answer, isn't it? I, I, I think so. Or I hear a lot, I try to be. Or I've also heard when I say, are you a Christian? They'll say, I'm working on it. Because people are confused because they see so many different varieties of Christian experience out there. <clears throat> I think if for the uninitiated, the unchurched, non-Christian, not yet convinced, pre-Christian, whatever you want to call it. And they, they interact with people and family and friends and coworkers or classmates and all of that. And, they, and if they know someone who's a Christian and they look at them, and, and you, you find this, there's all sorts of varieties of Christian experience. Maybe you, you have a, a, someone that you're in class with, and that person is really expressive, right? They, maybe they're more of the Pentecostal or charismatic style or variety, if you want to call it, of Christian. They're very emotional, and they say, I'm a Christian. And that same person uh, goes home, and then they find a neighbor and that neighbor they know is a Christian, and that person's more repressed emotionally. They're more conservative, maybe more intellectual in their understanding. And then they go to work, and then they, they go to work, and they find someone who's really active, real busy all the time. They're compassionate for the poor, and, and they're into community service and social justice, and they, know, and they say, I'm a Christian. And so you have all these different sort of Christian experiences and there are so many varieties of Christian experiences and Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what form of Christian experience you have or how you got there because anyone in the kingdom has these characteristics kingdom people these things in the Beatitudes are true of you because they set you apart now let's talk about the kingdom a little bit the first four Beatitudes tell you who is in the kingdom. If you look at them in your Bible, the poor in spirit, the mourning in spirit, the meek, and the hungry, hungry and thirsting for, for righteousness. Those are the people who are in the kingdom. The next four Beatitudes tell you about the new transformed life that kingdom people have. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're the persecuted. Now, when you think about people who are living in this blessed, powerful, happy, fortunate kingdom of God, you usually don't think of people who are poor or who are grieving or who are meek or who are hungry or who are persecuted, do you? But Jesus turns our thinking about the kingdom upside down and says, let me tell you how blessed Kingdom people live, so let's begin with the Beatitudes. We'll we'll take the first two Beatitudes today. Blessed are the poor, and those who mourn. Now I think it's interesting because Jesus is starting the greatest sermon ever preached here, and so he goes up on a on a rise on a on a mountain on a mount, and he sits down and he begins like all rabbis did at that time. Now he starts off in a very interesting way. When I took my uh, um, I, I took a few preaching classes in in Bible college and seminary, and and when they when they teach you how to start your sermon, they, they they teach you you know you should have something in the beginning that gives it kind of a you know something a funny story how about that um, how about a current event that kind of grabs people's attention how about how about you. You need a, a a hook, something that just hooks people in and they just want to get on the end of their seat and they want to listen to what you have to say after that. Well, the first two beatitudes that Jesus begins his sermon with are about a human problem. There are no hooks. There are no interesting funny stories that Jesus begins with. Every human has problems. It's universal. We all have problems. But Jesus begins with kingdom people see their problems differently. The first beatitude is the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins with addressing the culture. I, I think that's interesting. In the human condition, Jesus understood that that culture was focused on self. Now, it's not unlike our culture. Our, our culture is, is, we are the self-help, the self-focused culture, aren't we? There's a huge market out there for people who produce books and uh, write articles and, and make videos on how to do something without the help of an expert professional. You notice that out there? And those books, those, it, it, it sell like crazy out there. And so if you're cooking a meal, you want to cook like a chef, there's a video for that. If you want to build your own house, just go to Home Depot. they got seminars, you know, plumbing seminars and drywall seminars, roofing seminars. You can learn all the parts of how to build your house. Just go to Home Depot. They'll teach you how. Boy, you know, I I started feeling a little bit weird this morning, and I had kind of a pain right here. Who wants to call the doctor, right? Just go to WebMD, right? They'll tell you all about it. And, and then you say, well, yeah, I got this feeling, and then I, I know what I have now, right? And so you don't need the professionals anymore, it seems, because we are the self-help culture. There's a language that the self-help culture has. Believe in yourself, people will say. You've got what it takes. Don't listen to those old tapes. Just think positively, and everything's going to be okay. But Jesus is saying something totally different. He takes that idea... Of what we think is wonderful and blessed. And he turns that upside down. Jesus says, you know, I think if you've got some nagging doubts in your life. Jesus says, I think you should listen to those a little bit. The poor person says, I don't have what it takes. If you talk to a poor person, they'll tell you, I can't help myself. The poor say, I don't have the power to change. I need someone to help me. My problems are beyond me. But you know what? That's not the language of our culture, is it? What Jesus is saying is, it has to be a starting point for the kingdom people. He says, you have to begin with, I am poor. Because first point we can make here is, everyone is poor in spirit. Everyone is poor is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that my problems are more than psychological. My problems are more than social problems. My problems are more than financial or relational or vocational. They are at its core. My problems are spiritual. The most successful self-help group in the world. Now think about this. Everyone think about this. What is the most successful self-help group in the world that's helped millions of people overcome. It's AA. That's right. Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's interesting because they have a 12-step process that leads you to wholeness and sobriety. But the first step of AA is this. Let me, add, let me just, when I read this, I want you to think if it sounds familiar to you. The first step is we admitted, we admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. It sounds really familiar to me, like the first beatitude. I wonder if Jesus got the first beatitude from AA, <laughs> or maybe it was the other way around. Everyone is poor in spirit. The second thing we can say about the first beatitude is being poor in spirit is a sense of powerlessness and helplessness being poor in spirit is this sense of powerlessness and helplessness i don't think a lot of us like to feel powerless or even helpless in our life many people approach christianity like it's a self-help thing though i mean it happens often you'll say to me oh um my my neighbor is going through a really rough patch there she's going through a divorce so i asked her to come to church my cousin is really really hurting right now she's going through a loss of job a loss of family i hope she goes to church Many people approach Christianity like it's a self-help thing because they just need a boost. They just need to kind of get over the hump. they got a problem, a conflict, a loss, so they think that God's going to give them a boost. And a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to try God out for a little bit, see if he can help. Well, you just can't try God out. Psalm 40 says, as for me, I'm poor, I'm needy. May the Lord think of me. God, you are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Those are words of someone who's poor. The poor in spirit person says, I don't have what it takes. I've come to realize that my problems are beyond me and I can't do it on my own. So you need to accept help, you need to receive help, you need assistance, you need to be humble. And let me just say this for NOVA people. I know that that is so hard for us. We're so self-reliant. It's so easy for us to say, nah, I got this. It's so easy to refuse anybody who wants to reach out. But what I read is the poor in spirit They have the kingdom of heaven. This is becoming aware of the symptom of your problem. Let's take a look at the second beatitude. The second beatitude goes right along with that. It's those who mourn will be comforted. Now, those who are poor are those who mourn because the loss of something or someone valuable will result in mourning. When you have a loss, it'll always result in mourning. Uh, An uh, an author, Rebecca Manley Pippert, writes about how she's in the kitchen busy cooking a dinner. And she's just busy, got some pots going on and things, and her three-year-old daughter is sitting on a stool watching her mom busily cooking dinner. Well, in the background, there's a TV going on with the evening news. And so the author's just cooking, and the three-year-old's, watching and kind of watching tv watching mom and then on that news report is this gruesome scene of wartime human violence we've had a lot of that recently and the young girl looks at the tv and the mom is sort of alarmed that she has the tv on and all of that came on and the young girl just appalled at this this report on the evening news and she says mommy why are they so mad And then she says, Mommy, why are they so bad? And then she says, where is their mother anyways? Sometimes it takes fresh eyes to realize that human existence is in an appalling condition. Most of us, what we see on the evening news, read on news websites, is only just a fraction of really what's happening out there in the world. And many times we're just shocked and appalled. But only for the moment, maybe two or three days, maybe at the most a week at some news report of gruesome human violence until something else catches our attention and just sort of purposefully distracts us from reality. And we forget to ask, where's their mom anyways? Because people ask these questions all the time. Why are we so bad anyways? And why is there so much evil? And so answers come flowing out of from everywhere. It seems like why are we so? Be- why is there so much evil? It's a race issue, someone will say, or it's low self-esteem, it's disparity in social economic levels. Someone will say it's a family of origin problem. They didn't have a a dad or a mom at home, or they were this or that. But Kingdom people see the sad reality of the human condition, and they admit. That it's a problem It's because it's not a race issue It's not just a race issue It's not just a low self-esteem issue At the core the problem is sin Mourners are those who are honest and aware Of their own powerlessness and helplessness Mourners are those who are They're honest and they're aware Of their own powerlessness and their own helplessness They understand that there's very little they can do to fix their own lives and their own strength and power or fix someone else in their own strength and power. Psalm 119 says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Jesus' pronouncement on the kingdom of heaven brings the first taste for us of this kingdom blessing. The poor in spirit and those who mourn experience the fulfillment of this blessing and we mourn oppression and we mourn persecution but we do not despair as kingdom people because we know the future outcome for those who are in the kingdom we mourn over personal sin and social evils because we mourn the things that God mourns but as we mourn as we mourn we become instruments of the good news of the kingdom. and We bring comf- the comfort of God with which we ourselves have been comforted with. Isaiah the prophet says in, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, this is a precursor for the Beatitudes here, and you could see it in this passage of Scripture. It's he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. In a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I was thinking just yesterday as I was preparing these words today, I was thinking about all of us, all of you, and knowing the the sadness that some of you are going through because of loss. Just thinking about the neediness that that some of us have. The, The poverty that some of us have. Not so much in riches. Because you have enough money to sort of, if you could buy relief from something, pain, in your life, you would do it. And I was thinking, how do we we begin to talk about how we're sad and how we're needy as a church? One of the first points today was everyone is poor. Everyone's poor in spirit. There's not one here who isn't. There's not one out there beyond these four walls who isn't. And so I, I just thought today, I wonder if Nova would be a church who would be willing to have some individuals just admit, I've had a terrible week. I'm so sad because of a loss in my life. Because I know Nova to be a comforting church. And if someone would admit, I feel so poor this week, so needy this week or if someone would admit I'm so sad in the midst of we're singing these songs and I want to sing them with my whole heart but I'm so sad on the inside because if you're willing to admit that today I know Nova to be a church of acceptance and love and comfort so I'd like to ask you to stand right now we're going to close in prayer So with everyone stand. After I pray, we're going to close our worship in, in a hymn. But before we go to that, if you are feeling so poor today, poor in spirit, poor, just feeling hopeless and needy today, or If you just feel like a loss in your life, maybe it happened so long ago, but it's just, you Just you resonate with the words today. Just feel sad today. Would you be willing to raise your hand just in a second? And I want the people of NOVA to respond. If someone's hand goes up around you, would you just quickly move to them and put your arm around them, put your hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray just in a second. So today, if you feel poor, just needy and helpless, powerless, or you feel a, a strong sense of loss today and grief, would you just raise your hand right now? And if a hand goes up, would you put, would you just put your arm around that person? Anybody else? There you go. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's pray together. Thank you, God.